0: Good evening, family. My name is Danielle, and I'll be doing the Bible reading today. We're reading from Mark 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said and said to the man, "Stretch out your hand." He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boa, Nurgis, I don't know, that is Sons of Thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he is out of his mind and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him, And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God.
1: Well, lovely to see you all here again, and lovely to be with you. And, Deneo, thank you for that reading. That one word is tricky. I was trying to practice it earlier this afternoon, and I was struggling just as much as you were. So, uh, well done. We're looking at Mark's Gospel, and uh, last week we picked up from Chapter 2. For those who are new here this evening... My name is Martin, I'm one of the pastors here at Christchurch Midrand, and as you can see that I'm the oldest pastor by far, and I don't have such a wonderful shirt as David does, and um, it's great to be here with you this evening. We're actually going to look at chapter 3 from verse 7, last week we picked up on chapter 3, verse 1 to 6. So we're going to pick it up from verse 7 to the end of the chapter, and it really is going to be a great, great help to me if you do have your Bibles open in front of me so that you can follow with me as we look through this passage. My job, as is David's job, as is the job of any preacher here at Christchurch Midrand, is not to share their own ideas. I have wonderful ideas, but they really are not important at all. What you need to hear is God's ideas. So my job and David's job and anyone who preaches here is to open up the Word of God and to expose the Word of God so that we as God's people can understand it and apply it to our lives. So it's very important that you have the Bible in front of you because we hear the voice of God, not when David speaks or when I speak, especially not David, but you hear the voice of God when you read the Word of God. And we pray that the Spirit of God will apply it to our hearts and our minds. So let me pray and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather together here this evening. You know where we come from. You know our circumstances. You know our context You know some of the challenges and struggles and joys that we have at home, at work, in our families. You know some of the things we worry about as we think about tomorrow and this week. We thank you that you are here with us by your Spirit and that you know all things and that you love us more than we can imagine. And one of the great ways that you've shown your love is by sending your Son And by sending your word. And so we pray that we may meet your son as we read your word. But we need your spirit for that to happen. So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do its work in our lives as we meet together. For Christ's sake. Amen. My wife is called Jean, and uh, we've been married for 34 years. That is much older than most of you are. You weren't even born 34 years ago. I'd been dating Jean. This is about 100 years ago. I was dating Jean, <laughs> and uh, after some time, I decided this is the girl I wanted to marry. Um, and uh, And so I plucked up the courage, and it takes courage, as you guys know, Uh, those of you who have been engaged or are married, it takes courage to ask a girl to marry you. And so I plucked up the courage and, uh, the one evening was a Friday evening. I picked her up from work. We were living and working in Cape Town and, uh, we drove to the slopes of Table Mountain, sort of where the cable car is. Do you know where that is? So we, so we parked there and, uh, I had a picnic supper it wasn 't that romantic, but they were beautiful. I mean there were beautiful lights all around us. You had the beautiful view of the harbor, the lights, and the wind was blowing as it always blows in Cape Town. So we sat in the car and we had our fish and chips and uh, um, and uh, Of course, I was very nervous i 'd never done that before i didn 't actually have a ring. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I did lots of things wrong, but we still married after 34 years, folks. Uh, I finally... Yeah, it was fish and chips from Mowbray and uh, I finally plucked up the courage and I asked you to marry her and in my proposal I said you do know that in six months time I'm moving to Johannesburg so if you say yes it means you are moving with me to Johannesburg and you may want to think about this and so I waited six months no I didn't <laughs> She said yes straight away, and I was over the moon. I married above myself. You must always marry above yourself. Think about that. And uh, what I didn't know as a naive young man was that when that engagement was announced, it changed everything. The first thing that happened was that all of girlfriends screamed, right? They just screamed. And then... Uh, there's a whole flurry of activity. There's, there's a date. There's a wedding venue. There's the parents. There's the family. There's the dress. There's the bridesmaids. There's the guest list. There's the premarital counseling. I had no idea that this one, this one thing, this one announcement that we're going to get married, um, this one event will change everything. And it did for the better. Well, in a sense, that's what we have in this passage, chapter 3. This one event changes everything. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. One event changed everything. Now... The book of Mark, remember from last week, the author is John Mark, and you pick him up in Acts 12, Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15. His name is Mark, but it's also John, so he could be called John Mark. Remember, he was probably born in Cyrene, North Africa, present-day Libya, which means he was an African, and uh, he was one of the four gospel authors. So it's a wonderful thing to think that of the four gospels, which have been read by billions of people over 2,000 years, One of the authors was an African. And when he was writing this, so you could actually read the 16 chapters in like one hour, one and a half hours. So he has a real purpose, and he includes certain things during the ministry of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was three years. Remember that. So he includes certain things, and he excludes other things for a purpose. And he's really answering three questions in Mark's Gospel. Three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do we respond? You can take three cokey pens. Red, yellow, green. And you can mark most of Mark's gospel in one of those three colors. He's answering one of those three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? How do we respond? Chapter one and two deals largely with the first question. Who is Jesus? Chapter three deals largely with the question, how do we respond? Because what we read here is the response of different people to Jesus. And we are to learn from that. Mark is telling us you need to learn the good things and bad things. There's a right way, there's a wrong way to respond to Jesus. And then later on in the in the gospel, he continues looking at those three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do we respond? So what are we are going to do this evening as we look at chapter 3 from verse 7 to the end of the chapter? We're going to look at four responses to Jesus. We'll look at the response of the crowds, the response of the evil spirits, the response of the apostles, and the response of his enemies. And we are to learn from that. Mark is trying to tell us. These are different responses. You need to take note. Some of them are right and some of them are wrong. Be careful how you respond to Jesus. First response. Response to the crowds. Let me pick it up. Pick it up, verse 7. Verse 7 to 10, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and the great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had Diseases pressed around him to touch him. Now it's obviously notice verse seven. There's huge, enormous crowd. Verse eight, we told, they come from all over Palestine and beyond Palestine. So just notice here, it's a multi-ethnic, multi-racial crowd. So, uh, Jesus was in Capernaum. We know that from chapter 2, verse 1. That was a fishing town in Lake, on Lake Galilee, in the province of Galilee. So, they were Jews. There's a crowd from Galilee. There's a crowd from Jerusalem and Judea. That's in the south. They were all Jews. There are people from Idumia. that is south of Jerusalem. They were also Jews. The people from east of the Jordan River, that is a mixture of Jews and Gentiles, and then people from Tyre and Sidon, that's up northwest outside of Palestine, and they were all Gentiles. So Mark is giving us a first hint, a first hint here, that the kingdom that Jesus has come to establish is a multiracial, multi-ethnic kingdom. Not just Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles. Then verse 10, you'll notice it gets a little bit scary because there, there seems to be no crowd control. There's no, no uh, security here. There's no big concert officials, no police, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. In fact, verse 9 tells us that there was a real danger of Jesus being, being mobbed, being, being crushed. Which is why, notice verse nine. They had to have a boat out on this, out on the lake, just in case. It's the, it's the idea of a kind of a getaway car idling behind the stage, um, in case you need a quick getaway. That's what's happening here in verse eight and nine. It's a little bit, so it feels a little bit like a rock concert. Where there's a rock star and there are tens of thousands of people wanting to see him, to touch him, to grab him, to get a piece of his clothing. That's what's happening here. Uh, get his autograph. Remember rock concerts? Um, we haven't had them for two years. The ro- last rock concert I went to with a family was Coldplay at Soccer City. It was fantastic. It was, I think, 2011 or 2010. There were 65,000 people from South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Mozambique, and there was Coldplay, and uh, we were all singing the songs. We were standing in our seats and singing, and I was buzzing for three, four days afterwards. Um, well, I think that's sort of what we're having here. You're having fans. You're having a crowd. They want entertainment. They want a piece of Beyonce or Chris Martin or Jesus Christ Superstar. That's what they want here. That's what's happening here. The problem with fans is they're very fickle. They're very fickle. You know that. Today it's uh, Kanye West. Tomorrow it's Black Newmon. Um, <laughs> Fans, fans, fans want to hide. They want to fix. Yes? Fans don't do commitment. We know that. In fact, you'll notice here, verse 8, the fans aren't all that interested in his words, only in his works. Verse 8, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Verse 10 For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. They didn't come to listen to him. They didn't come to learn from him. They didn't come to submit to him. No, they wanted a piece of him. They wanted to get from him, to take from him. You can go, says mom, but don't come back without your healing. In Mark's gospel, crowds never become disciples. Jesus has compassion on the crowds quite often, but you never find commitment from the crowds. John Mark never describes them as exercising faith and repentance. They are always spectators, always. They're always takers. What's in it for me? They're either passive or fickle. So in Passion Week, the week before the death of Christ... They are laying palm branches. Remember? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Five, six days later, the same crowd says, crucify him. Same crowd. Crowds don't do commitment. Unlike many parts of of the world, South Africa still has still has, there's still social mileage in calling yourself a Christian in our country. I often ask people, tellers or waiters or people I meet, are you a Christian? And very rarely does anyone say no. And then I normally ask, when did you become a Christian? And normally they say, well, I was born a Christian, which then tells me they're not a Christian, (laughs) unless they mean born again. Um, Which means that there are lots of fans of... Jesus in South Africa. We're doing the census this month. Yes? And we'll probably find 70, 75% of people saying they are Christian. They're fans of Jesus. They're crowds. They're spectators. Just watch Easter. There'll be millions. Yes? Millions. What do they want? Well, I think if you look at the larger Christian world, they want Christian entertainment. Or they want gospel music. We have wonderful music. But is that all you want? Just gospel music? Or perhaps they want a high. They want to fix. They want to leave. They want to leave church on a high like when I left Coldplay Rock Concert. For two, three days, my head was buzzing. Perhaps that's what fans of Jesus want. Or perhaps they want motivational talks: how to be positive, how to be a success. I think Mark is telling us that is not the way to respond to Jesus. You see, in Iraq or Iraq, Iraq or Iran or Saudi Arabia, they're no fans of Jesus. You either a disciple or nothing. You don't put a Christian sticker on your car saying Jesus is Lord because when you come out of the shop, your car will be burnt. They may burn your house. Turn to Mark chapter 8, verse 34, which is the key passage on what the right response is to Jesus. It's not to be part of the crowd. It's not to be a spectator. It's not to be a fan. No, here's our response. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him, the same crowd. But they didn't listen, by the way. With his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after him, after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. It's pretty stark, isn't it? It's black or white, it's in or out. 34. There are no spectators here, there are no fans here. These are not, he's not talking about getting a fix. He's not talking about being highly motivated. No, no, no. If you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and follow me. You must lose your life and live for me. You're not a fan. You're not a spectator. You're not fickle. No, it's me or nothing. It's in or out. In a sense, what Mark is saying to us and what Jesus is saying to us is stop being a fan. Stop being a spectator. Get in or get out. Stop pretending to be a Christian. Because all you are doing is blocking the door and other people can't see the real thing. Get in or get out. Stop being a fan. All right, second response. That's the crowd. Second response are the evil spirits. Verse 11 and 12. Back to Mark. Are you with me? Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 11. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, it's quite obvious that the evil spirits fully understand the identity of Christ. Right away, you are the Son of God. They, are, they know who Jesus is, straight away. If we take a step back, especially in my culture, my white Western secular culture, my white Western secular culture denies the supernatural, denies that there's a God, denies that there's eternity, denies that there's judgment, denies that there's heaven and hell. My Western secular culture, which is largely godless, it didn't used to be godless, Uh, from the time of the Reformation, but today it's largely godless, says that all that there is, we live in a closed universe, all that there is is what you can see and touch and smell and count. There's nothing else. It's a closed universe. There's no God, there's no eternity, there's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no evil spirits, there's no Satan, there's no angels. That is what my godless Western secular culture says. It's a closed universe. John Mark tells us, no, we live in an open universe. There's a real God, there's a real Satan, there are real evil spirits, and they have real power. And they really understand who Jesus is. So be careful. Some of us come from that background, that Western secular godless atheistic background, which says that there's only matter and energy and time and chance. That is, that is a totally anti-biblical worldview. The worldview of John Mark is the worldview of Jesus, is, is, is the worldview of the Bible. There's a real God. There's a real Satan. There are real evil spirits. There are real angels. They have real power. And we're in the midst of all of that. And so you find in Mark's gospel and the other gospels, Uh, Numerous references to to evil spirits who have power. And uh, let's not be taken in by this dominant uh, Western secular atheistic culture which says all there is is matter and energy. That is not true. It's a lie. They're not telling you the truth. Um, They're telling you a lie. Quite striking here, and in all the Gospels, that whenever Jesus appears, so throughout the Gospels, it seems to arouse the activity of the evil spirits. They seem to be awakened. So it's almost as if they are angered at the appearance of Jesus on their turf. And so you have regular instances where the evil spirits are aroused in anger, in displeasure, Because here is the Son of God on their turf. It's very interesting when when you read Mark's gospel that up until chapter 8, verse 29, none of the disciples, and certainly not the crowd, could identify who Jesus is. They didn't know who he was. Was he a prophet? Was he John the Baptist? Was he Elijah? It's only in chapter 8, verse 29, when Peter says, You are the Christ. Before then, there are only two voices that identify Christ's identity. First, the Father. At the baptism of Jesus, you remember, you are my son. With you I am well pleased. And secondly, the evil spirits. They live in the spiritual world. They know who Jesus is. No confusion. The Son of God. They hate him. They oppose him, but they know who he is. What is interesting, notice there again, let's just, let's just quickly trace the skirmishes between Jesus and Satan. And in every case, you'll notice the evil spirits know who he is. So chapter 1, verse 24. Chapter 1, verse 24 Uh, there's a man with an unclean spirit. He cries out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So not only does, does the evil spirit know who he is, the Holy One of God, but he knows why he's come. He's come to destroy them. Then you have here in our passage, chapter 3, verse 11, you are the Son of God. Then chapter 5, verse 7, notice again, Chapter 5, verse 7. There's an evil spirit. His name is Legion. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He knows who Jesus is. He knows his identity. More than the disciples, more than anyone apart from the Father, up until chapter 8, verse 29. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. In fact the apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 3 verse 8 that the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil. They knew that. Now what is striking is that the demons had orthodox theology. Their theology was perfect. They knew the creed. They knew who Jesus was. They knew who God is. They know who the Spirit is. And yet they did not submit. They did not obey. They hated him. Let's go back to our question. How do you respond to Jesus? Well, we saw the crowds. They were fans. They were spectators. They were fickle. But Fans don't do commitment. Evil spirits, how do they respond to Jesus? Well, they know who he is. They know exactly who he is. They know why he came. He came to torture them, to torment them, to destroy them. They know who he was, the Son of God. I would think that if you were a missionary in China or North Korea where... uh, Uh, dear leaders just fired another missile. I would think in those contexts, if you came into contact with evil spirits and mentioned Jesus, even though in that area there was no church or Bible, those evil spirits would know who you're talking about. Think about it. They would know who you're talking about, just like these evil spirits. You are the son of the Most High. You have come to destroy us. What is their response? They are theologically orthodox, But they have no intention of obeying Christ, of submitting to Christ. So that is a massive warning to us. You can know a lot about the Bible. You may have been brought up in the church. You may know the Bible stories back to front. You may be a pastor's kid. You may have all the answers. You may know all the prayers and all the songs. You may know all the creeds. You may have a degree in theology. You may have a PhD in the doctrine of Christ and not be a Christian. So, my dear friends, just knowledge of the truth doesn't make you a Christian. The demons had knowledge of Christ. They knew who he was. They knew why he came. They were not believers. They hated Christ. They would not submit to him. They would not listen to him. They would not obey him. And it's quite possible for you and me to know and have a great deal of knowledge about Christian things, to know our way around the church, to know our way around the Bible, to know our way around theology, and yet know nothing of a personal relationship with Christ. Remember what James said. He said, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. If there's no repentance and faith, the demons and those who do not submit to Christ are destined for hell and destruction. It's not good enough to have a certificate on your wall that says you graduated from Bible college. You can graduate from Bible college and be a stranger to Christ, like the evil spirits. All right, we've looked at responses to Jesus, and I think that's the dominant theme here in chapter 3. We've looked at the response of the crowd, the response of the evil spirits. Let's have a look at the response of the apostles. Let me pick it up from verse Are you still with me? Verse 13, And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, James, and all the other names that Danao mentioned. Well done, (laughs) Deneo. Now, before we see how the disciples responded to Jesus, it's important for us to pick up a few important points at this stage. Have a look at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. Now, something unique is happening here, and the first hint of that is when John Mark says he went up on the mountain. He did go up on the mountain, but why did John Mark include that? Remember, you can read Mark's gospel in 90 minutes, and it was three years that Jesus did ministry. So what he included matters. So if you know your Bible, you will know that mountains are quite... Significant junctures for God's actions in salvation history. So remember, uh, the Ten Commandments were given to Moses on the mountain. Abraham sacrificed Isaac on the mountain, which is a picture of the cross. Jesus gives his manifesto. In John chap- Matthew chapter 5 with a sermon on the mount. So when we read verse 13, Jesus went up on the mountain, our ears prick up because something special is about to happen. Just by the way, it's not teaching us that we can only meet God on the mountain. Okay? That's not what it's teaching us. It's telling us there's something significant in salvation history happening here. What is special? Well, just notice the first thing that is special. You'll notice verse 13 again, the sovereign purpose of God. The apostles did not choose Jesus. He chose them. It was entirely his choice, his initiative. He called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. Now, in those days, it was a little bit like Choosing whether you're going to go to Tuckis or to Vitz or to UJ or to Pearson's, or you would you would read the website, you would get the you would get the manual, you would read that, and you would choose which varsity you're going to go to. In those days, you would choose which rabbi you would join. So you would go and taste, listen to different rabbis, and then decide. I I like this rabbi. Jesus doesn't do that. He chose them. No choice. He chose them, and they came to him. Every one of them was chosen, called by Jesus, and they came. Notice then again, verse fourteen. It's quite unique. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. Why twelve? I mean, is there something about that number? Why not? Why not ten? There are ten commandments. Why not three? There are three in the Trinity. Why not uh, ten again? You could start a synagogue, which is like a church, with ten Jewish men. Why not seven? It's supposed to be the perfect number. Why twelve? The answer is that Jesus, this is a momentous occasion. He's gone up on the mountain. It's a momentous occasion. He is choosing the new Israel. The old Israel had rejected him as evidenced in the crowds. And throughout the gospel, they reject him. They turn against him. He weeps over them. And so Jesus comes and he establishes a new Israel. The old ethnic Israel rejected the Messiah. So Jesus establishes a new Israel. And the twelve disciples are the embryonic root of the new Israel. We are the new Israel. Because we've listened to the teaching of the apostles, the disciples. Now, it means that God's promises made to Israel in the Old Testament to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David, are fulfilled not in the nation state of Israel today. No, they are fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. We are the real Israel. Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Here we have the embryonic root of the new Israel. Now, there is a whole publishing industry, Christian publishing industry, which will try and prove to you that the nation-state of Israel is how God will fulfill his purposes. There's a whole TV Christian industry which has videos and and cameras in Israel and Jerusalem and telling you how Christ will appear and he will gather in the nation-state of Israel and others. My dear friends, that idea is trashed by chapter 3, verse 13 to 19. We are the new Israel. Just the other quick point to notice is that the word apostle, it means messenger or representative, someone who acts on behalf of somebody else. But in the New Testament, it's mostly, 99% of the time, used of the 12. And they were God's, they were Christ's representatives. Apostle can also mean power of attorney. He gave them power of attorney, to act on his behalf. They were there to found the early church. They were there to act as his representatives. They were there to give us the New Testament. They were there to give us the foundation of the church, but they've all died. There are no more apostles. At the end of Acts, Judas hung himself, committed suicide, And so they had to choose another to make up the twelve. Remember? To make up the twelve. And they chose Matthias. And the qualification was he had to be with them from the baptism and a witness of the resurrection. Paul tells us, Ephesians 2 verse 20, that the church is founded, the foundation of the church is the apostles and prophets. They gave us the word of God. They no more apostles. They've died. I am not an apostle. I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. (laughs) Right? An apostle was someone who was there with a physical Jesus. Now, why I say that is because in our Christian culture, there are many Christian leaders, pastors, who call themselves apostles. Sometimes it may be out of ignorance but I think more often than not, it's because they're trying to give themselves authority. They're trying to give themselves power. My dear friends, we are an apostolic church, not because Royton is an apostle, certainly not David an apostle. I'm not an apostle. We're an, op- we're an apostolic church because we follow the apostolic teaching of God's word. The apostles have died. Our authority is their teaching. In, interesting that when that when Paul appoints Timothy to succeed him in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, he doesn't appoint him as an apostle. Never. Not one word of that in 1 and 2 Timothy. Paul, Paul's about to die. Timothy, take over the job. He doesn't appoint him as an apostle. He says to Timothy, appoint elders in Ephesus. Not apostles, elders. Think about that. Notice two unique responses of the apostles. My time is going, I realize that. Notice the two things they do. Their first response: where are we? It's not like the crowds who are fickle, not like the ev- evil spirits where there's no submission. When Jesus calls, verse 13, they come notice that he calls them and they came to him he calls us and we come secondly notice that they not only come to him they come that they might be with him so discipleship is firstly relational you're a disciple not of Christianity not of a philosophy not of all kinds of teachings no you're a disciple of a person You come to him and you are with him. You have a relationship with Jesus. So being with Jesus means that you trust him, that you love him, that you obey him, that you talk to him. And then notice also that they serve him so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So there is a proper response As opposed to the demons, as opposed to the crowds of the apostles, they come to him, they are with him, and they serve him. Very quickly, let's have a look at the last response, the response of his enemies. Pick it up, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is another name for Satan, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is, is divided against itself, that house will also not be able to stand. And if Satan has For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Quickly notice, verse 22, they are not questioning the reality of his power. He does have power, and he has power over evil spirits. So let's remember that. We do not have to fear evil spirits if we have Jesus. If you don't have Jesus, you better fear them because they are stronger than you. Okay? So without Jesus, you have no defense. You're on your own. He does have power. He is able, verse uh, 27, to bind the strong man. But you can't bind him and I can't bind him. So he does have power. But notice verse 22. They're not questioning the reality of power. They're questioning the source of his power. In fact, they're saying, notice there, verse 23, verse 26, they are saying he is empowered by Satan, by evil spirits. And Jesus answers and says, Well, that's ridiculous. Uh, Why would Satan drive out Satan? Why would Satan drive out evil spirits? The verse that troubles us is verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So, that has troubled Christians for many, many years. Is there some sin, something I've done? Perhaps it's what I said. It's that time I said things I shouldn't have said. Perhaps... uh, Perhaps it was uh, some immorality. Perhaps I had an abortion. Perhaps I caused an abortion. Perhaps I killed someone. Perhaps it's something I did or said to my parents or my family. It makes me so guilty. I feel ashamed. Perhaps I've committed the unforgivable sin. What is the unforgivable sin? Well, let me just say to you, if you are scared that you've committed the unforgivable sin, you haven't. What is the unforgivable sin? Well, it's verse 22. It's saying that Jesus is doing the work of Satan. It's saying that good is evil, that right is wrong, and wrong is right. It's saying that Jesus has power, but it's demonic power. It's evil power. It's turning everything on its head, and it's not a single act. It's a settled disposition against God, against Christ, against the gospel. It's an ongoing rejection of Jesus. It's calling good evil. It's calling light darkness. It's calling Jesus Satan. It's not an isolated event. It's not an isolated word. It's not an isolated action. It's a settled state of mind. Opposition to God. We can never look at people and say they have committed the unforgivable sin. We don't know. We don't know the hearts of men and women. God knows. But there is a response to Christ, which is a constant rejection of him and his word. And in the end, there will be no forgiveness. It's almost obvious, if you have a settled opposition to Christ, Till the moment you breathe your last breath. Well, obviously there's no forgiveness. But I do think we see signs of that in our culture. Let me just give you one. Time is gone. And it's and it's my Western white secular culture. In Sweden today, in the last few months, there's an evangelical bishop who believes and teaches the Bible just like I do and David does. And one of the ministers there, they are charged with a criminal offense in Sweden. And the offense is that they are teaching that marriage is one man and one woman. And that is a criminal offense. And they are teaching that homosexuality is a sin. Now, when you think about that, isn't that calling light darkness? Isn't that calling right darkness? wrong there you have a culture that is moving into a situation of the unforgivable sin you are opposing God and his word and nature we know what nature tells us and you are saying these people who teach this are evil and we who teach this are good there comes a point where you have so opposed God day after day, month after month, year after year. You become hard. You become cynical. You've rejected his voice. You've rejected his His word. You've rejected his people. There comes a point of no return. The great promise, of course, is verse 28. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man. All sins. And whatever blasphemies we have uttered will be forgiven. What a promise. Perhaps you've had an abortion. Perhaps you caused an abortion. Perhaps you've hurt someone deeply, badly. There's forgiveness. There's grace. But don't turn your back on Jesus. Because we don't know how that's going to end. Well, let's pray. Let's spend a few moments of quiet as we reflect on God's Word. You tell God where you are. Father, we do pray that our response would be to hear the word of God and to do it. We pray that we may respond with open eyes and open heart to bow before King Jesus again and submit to him and listen to him. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you how it washes over us in a sense, cleanses us, and draws us to yourself, renews us, refreshes us. We know that's the Holy Spirit working through your word and working in our lives. And we pray that you will do that again tonight. Draw us to yourself. Help us, Lord, to once again confess our many sins and the many ways in which we fall and fail and call on you for mercy and grace. Father, we thank you so much that you have come for broken people like us. But will you help us to come and to be with you and to serve you? So, Lord, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for being with us. Go with us into this week. Help us to serve you, and we pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.